not been here, let me just catch you up very briefly and give you the rough sketch of the book of Esther thus far. The book of Esther is a 2,500-year-old story that's set in the context of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is ruled by a man named Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. He is the dominant political world figure of the day. The empire stretches all across the known world, really. Uh, Xerxes has a right-hand man named Haman. Haman is a man who's promoted to prime minister, and he feels snubbed, he feels slighted by a Jewish man named Mordecai. Mordecai will not reverence him or respect him or bow to him when he comes by. So Haman devises a plan to not just kill Mordecai, but to actually exterminate Mordecai, exterminate Mordecai and all of his relatives or ancestors and just pretty much eliminate the Jewish people. And he dupes and tricks Xerxes into signing a law that amounts to genocide. What he does not know is that Esther, the queen, is a Jewish girl, and she's actually related to Mordecai. And Esther decides that she's going to plead on behalf of her people to the king and ask the king to spare her people and also expose Haman for the liar and manipulator and evil man that he is. And we left it last week where Esther approached the king. The king was receptive to her and said, Esther, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I'm in a good mood. Try me. And Esther, instead of making a request, actually said, you know what? I want you to come to a dinner party I have, and why don't you bring Haman with you? So the king does, and Haman comes, and they're at this dinner party, and the stage is set, and you're expecting Esther to say, all right, here it is. I'm going to lower the boom. Haman's an evil man. He's manipulated you. And the king says, what do you want? And she invites them back to another dinner party the following evening. And that's where we left it last week. And we're going to pick the text back up in verse number 9 of Esther chapter number 5. And we're going to begin to examine this man named Haman. And I'll tell you up front, the problem of Haman's life is pride. There is no disease that, fed, that spreads faster than the disease of me. And Haman has been infected for quite some time. He's a prisoner of pride. And we're going to get a good look at this this morning, do a case study on pride, and hopefully help our own lives. So, verse number 9, let's start with the self-importance of Haman. Here we go. Haman went forth that day. This is from the feast, from the banquet that Esther just had for them. Joyful and with a glad heart. So he's on cloud nine. The sun is shining. Life is great. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. So here we thought in chapter 5 the tension was going to be resolved, that Esther was going to plead that all this tension with Mordecai and Haman and this verdict that they would, that would kill him, that all this was going to be done and resolved, but instead it's not. Now it's escalating Here's Mordecai again, just stuck in Haman's crawl. He sees him. He's mad. He's not bowing. He's not giving him respect. And Haman's happiness is marred by this slight that Mordecai gives. So, verse number 10, nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. When he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. So, we're going to see in bold letters in just a minute the root of pride. And we're going to see that the root of pride in this man's life and the root of pride in your life is really two ideas and two thought patterns. I did it and I'm do it. Those are the two. I did it and I'm do it. And you'll see that begin to work itself out here in verse number 11. Haman told them of the glory of his riches, of the multitude of his children, of all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. And Haman said, moreover... 
Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. So here's Haman that says, in no uncertain terms, I did it. All right, friends, wife, come on, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at my glory. Look at my riches. Look at my wealth and my bank account. Look at the kids that I have, which I think takes a particular type of arrogance to brag to your wife about the kids that you have, right? Like she had no involvement in this or something. Look at the kids that I have. Look at the promotion that I've been given. Look at how much uh, Xerxes respects me and he's promoted me and I'm second command. I'm above all the princes. And not only that, wait, there's more. Now the queen honors me too. It's not just Xerxes who thinks that I'm the stuff. Now apparently Esther thinks that I'm hot stuff too. She's inviting me to the banquet. Nobody else can come. I'm telling you, I was not a third will. I was not just like there on the side. No, I mean, I was in it. She, she prepared it for me. She was mindful of me. She, she loved me being there so much. She wants me to come back tomorrow. I'm awesome. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at who I am. I've done it. Be in awe, people. That's what he says. This is an unusual moment. I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but just to say, hey, let's all get together and let me tell you how, how sweet I am. This is what he does. Then verse number 12, I'm do it. Or verse number 13, excuse me. Yet all this availeth me nothing. My kids, my wealth, my position, all that avails me nothing. So as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, it's not just what I've done, it's what I'm due. And I'm due honor. I, I deserve that reverence. I deserve that respect. I deserve for him to bow the knee to me. I deserve for him to, to give me that deference, to give me that reverence. And he won't give it to me, and I'm do it. This is the heartbeat. I did it. I'm do it. Now, the problem with this heartbeat is that it's, it's, it's not just wrong. It's sinful. It's prideful. It's evil. It's extremely anti-biblical. And the first tough task I have today is to try to, con to convince you of such. And I understand that's a tall order because we live in America, and by and large, Americans aren't known for being super uber-duber humble, okay? It's, it's not something that just is perpetuated through our culture, that we're just these, these extreme people of humility. By and large, we celebrate, I did it. We think that we're doing it. We celebrate that I've worked hard and I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps and, and look at who I am and look at what I've accomplished. Like we celebrate that stuff and I want to try to show you biblically that that, that just shouldn't be. If the story that you're telling yourself is I did it and I'm doing it, you're, you're telling yourself the wrong story. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 4 to look at this. We're going to turn to a couple places this morning. I normally don't have you flip all over the place, but I'm going to today. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I just want to show you a couple passages. Frankly, they're some of my favorite passages to help you understand this. So let's read 1 Corinthians 4. I'll just give you two verses to, to debunk the idea biblically that you did it. Because the reality is you didn't really. So 1 Corinthians 4, let's look at this. Uh, look at verse 6. Pick it up right in the middle of verse 6. I won't even give you the context and all the background. I'll, for sake of time, I'll ignore that. Right in the middle of verse 6. That ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which was written. So Paul is here writing. He's telling the church, I want you to learn of me and Apollos, and I want you to look at our lives, and I want you to learn not to think of people, including yourself, above that which is written. 
So there's a perspective on humanity that actually the Bible gives, and I want your perspective of humanity, and I want your perspective of yourself to actually be parallel to and mirror that which the Scriptures teach. I want you to think of yourself the way that God would think of you. I want you to think of other people the way that God would think of them, so that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. The reason I want you to, to have your thinking aligned with the Scriptures is so that you are not puffed up, prideful, arrogant, and that you don't actually begin to lock horns with each other. You're going to be puffed up against each other. You're going to lock horns. You're going to, you're going to get at loggerheads with each other. This is, going to, this is going to result in relational conflict. This is going to be damaging. So let me help you think the right way. Then here's a series of questions. Verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? The basic question that you've probably never considered. Why are you different than them? Why do you have more money than them? Why are you more beautiful than them? Why do you have more stuff than them? Why are you uh, the one that received all the promotions and they are on an un unemployment? Why, why, do, why, why are you different? What, what makes you better? Who made you? Well, I'm self-made, obviously. I mean, it's, it's what I did. It's my attitude. It's what I brought to work. I showed up on time. I've worked hard. I went to college. I read the right books. You know, my life is better because of me. Well, next phrase. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Here's what Paul says. What is it that makes you different, makes you better, makes you superior in some way, shape, or form that ultimately you do not trace back to you, but you trace back to a gift that you have received. What makes you different? What do you have in your life that ultimately is not a gift? You say, oh, time out, hold on. Wait a minute. You don't know how tough it was. You don't know how hard I worked. You don't know how hard I studied. You don't know how I've applied myself. You, you don't know what I've done. Okay, what did you work hard with? What did you study hard with? What did you apply yourself with? Gifts, talents, intellect that came from where? From who? Why, why were they born mentally handicapped and you weren't? That's what he's saying. Okay, let, let me ask you. Did you choose your parents, yes or no? Not a trick question. I'll ask you a trick question later. I'll surprise you. But not right now, not a trick question. Did you choose your parents, yes or no? No. Did you choose your siblings, yes or no? Did you choose what country you were born a citizen of, yes or no? Did you choose what century you were born in? No. You think any of those things were mildly formative in your life? You think your early childhood experiences may have formed you and shaped you? One of those things on their own is, is massively formative. You put all those together, all of those things are gifts. All of those things were not of your choosing, not of your doing, not of your working, not because of who you are. It, it's just because they were given to you. You think you're the same person with the same stuff if you're born in Madagascar? We just shipped 285,000 meals over there. What's the difference between you, who, who you're sending the food to Madagascar, and the one in Madagascar with their hands out and eating the food? What's the difference? Well, uh, duh, obviously, they're lazy and I work hard. Wrong. I'm not saying you don't work hard. I'm not saying there aren't lazy people in Madagascar. Maybe they are. I've never been there. I don't know. What I am saying, though, is if you presuppose that the reason that you have 
superiority, or you have more money, or you have more wealth, or you have better looks, or you have a better intellect, or you got the promotion, or you da 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 The reason that you suppose that that is, is because you did it, you don't understand the gifts that have been given to you. You don't understand the grace of God. And Paul takes that argument, and he, and he ends verse 7 with this, now if thou didst receive it, so let's suppose I'm right, and you did receive it, and it is gifts, and it is sheer grace, if you did receive it, why do you glory as if thou hast not received it? Here's what he says. If that's true, and it is, then why do you glory in yourself and you're prideful and you're self-promoting and you act as though it wasn't a gift? Why are you taking the gifts and acting like they weren't gifts and that you were never given anything and that you did it all yourself? Stop. What, you, what is he saying? He's saying stop the mindset of I did it, I did it, I did it. Do, do, you, see, do you see who I am? Now, you see the difference here between a puffed-up person that he talked about in verse 6 and a, and a humble person? A humble person isn't someone who never receives the gifts. It's never someone who, who doesn't take advantage of the gifts. That's not what I'm saying at all. A humble person is the one who actually will receive the gifts, but receives them and understands and in turn gives glory to God. You're not supposed to glory in yourself. You glory in God. And a humble person is someone who, I'm not, I'm not disincentivizing working hard or applying yourself. Don't read me wrong. What I am saying is that you work hard and you apply yourself and you go to school and you work the business and you do all those things because you understand that a gracious God gave me an intellect and gave me health whereas someone else my age has health that's terminal and hurting them to death. And, and, and I take that and I receive it and I want to steward it well while giving glory and praise to God and thanking Him for being so awesome to me, right? There's a difference. Pride says, I did it. A humble spirit says, I'm just, I'm just stewarding as best I can what God's given me. Thank, thank you, God, for your grace. But we're also told that we're not doing it. Turn a couple pages backwards to Romans chapter number 11. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, if you've been in church any length of time, you know probably on an annual basis I'm going to hit this text some way, shape, or form to help you just start to think of God a little bigger and yourself a little bit smaller. Romans chapter number 11, look at verse number 33. Now, mind you, this is from Paul a man who's a very systematic theologian and is not prone to song and dance, okay? But he's going to go like high school musical on us here in a minute, and he's just, he's just going to like burst out with praise and just go crazy and just extol the name of the Lord. So here we go, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What's he saying? God is rich in wealth, sure, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God never had to go to a venture capitalist firm to, you know, to get some funds to supply what he needed. God never bounced a check. He's rich in wealth, but he's also rich in wisdom. He knows everything. He's God. Like, that's his godness. He's, he's omnipotent. He knows it all. He knows every fact ever recorded, unrecorded, every piece of truth, how it works on a macro level, how it all fits together, how all the planets are aligned. Before we even knew all those planets were out there, God knew on planet Z there was some moon with a mountain and there's water on there. So he knew, he knew all that. God knows that. He knows on a micro level how it all works and it all fits together. He knows everything from from the beginning of time to the end of time, he knows it all. Oh, the depth. So how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? What are you going to do to search his judgments? You're going to hire a private investigator to figure out if God's judgments were right or not? You're going to scrutinize him? You're going to put him under a microscope and say, oh, you called that one wrong. You probably Let, let me help you out, God. You probably didn't know this, but... Uh, if, if you knew this, then you probably would have done this differently. Are you going to do that with God? No. 
the riches of his wisdom. How are you going to scrutinize him? How are you going to find that out? You, you, you want to do that? So Paul begins to ask you some really silly rhetorical questions. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? You, you know enough to counsel God and say, God, look, I like what you're doing in Canada right now. Thumbs up. It's, I'm swimmingly well. Good job. But I don't know if you noticed, but over in the Middle East, there, there's some issues with Hamas and Israel right now. I think you could do better. So if you would, now listen to me, if you would one, two, and three, then I think it would go, you're going to counsel God. You're going to give him advice. You, you're going to you're gonna give him the, the solution and tell him he took the wrong course of action. Verse 35, here it is. You're not do it. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? You know what he's saying? You ever put God in your debt? You ever give to God so now he owes you? Now you're due, and you can just run around with life saying, God, you owe me, man. I mean, look at what I've done for you lately. I don't care how religious you are today. You're not putting God in your debt. You're never going to get him to a point where he says, ah, you know what? I've run up a tab with you. I, I guess I better pay the piper. What do, what do you want, Mark? I'll give you what you want today because I'm, I'm really in your debt today. Nope. You're never going to put him in a spot to where God owes you or you're due from him. What do you have to offer him? For real, like he's God. What do you have to offer him? My life. He can do what he wants to with your life. He's God. You're not. Well, well I'll serve him. You, you owe him your service anyway. It's not like if you give that to him, then he owes you back in return. You owe him. He's, you, you're not due anything. So, therefore, verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So what he's saying is all flows through him, so give him glory. You want to promote somebody? Stop promoting yourself. Start promoting God. You, you want to look at who's great and who's awesome and who's awe-inspiring and who deserves the praise and who deserves to be lifted up. It ain't you. It ain't me. It's him. So praise him. Give him glory. Now, I could take you to a whole bunch of other places, but I'll leave it there. The point being that the attitude that Haman exhibits, that is, I did it, and I'm do it, and I'm owed, and look at what I've accomplished, that attitude is the root of pride, and that attitude should not be. That for us to move through life thinking that we're sweet, I know your grandma told you that you could accomplish anything, but your granny lied, okay? You're not sweet. And I'm, I'm not trying to like def, deflate you and have you run through life just all, all wilted over. I'm trying to help you understand the reality that you are a finite creature. You're not God, and you're not anywhere close. It's, you're, you're, you don't have unlimited potential. You can't do anything that you want to. A lot of that depends on grace and gifts that are given to you that are outside of your control, right? That's the truth. Culture is not going to tell you that. I'll tell you right now. You turn on TV, they're not going to tell you that. That is not the narrative that's being sold to our children or to us. But that is the rock-solid biblical truth that Paul wanted to help the Corinthians get to, where, get to where they understood that I want you to think of others and I want you to think of yourself in line with the Scriptures so that you are not puffed up and begin to war against each other and, th and think that you're hot stuff. Because you're not. And I'm not. But God is. So here's Haman, this man who has this pride that's rooted in him, that is expressing itself very overtly to those that are around him. Keep your finger in Romans, but go back to, to Esther chapter number five. Here's what happens. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, 
Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high. We've talked about the gallows in previous sermons. We don't know if it was like with a rope sort of gallows or if it was a stake or if it was a big cross. It's, we really don't know and it doesn't matter. What it means, a gallows means a wooden, you know, execution device is what it means. He says, tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman and he caused the gallows to be made. So my man, overnight, is going to have some servants build him a gallows 50 cubits high. A cubit is your elbow to the tip of your finger. It's roughly a foot and a half, 75 feet. It's entirely too large, okay? You don't need this to to kill a person. But build him 75 feet high, and Zeresh tells him to do it, which reminds you a lot of his Jezebel. If you remember Ahab and Jezebel, when Ahab was sulking and pouting because Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard, and Jezebel's solution was like, just kill the dude. So they did. And Zeresh is very, very similar to that. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Don't salt. Don't pout. Why don't we just kill the man? And she says, so tomorrow you can merrily go into the banquet. Tomorrow you can go to the banquet. You can have a good time. And you can rest assured when you come out of there, ain't no Mordecai there to, to pay you some disrespect. He'll be gone. He'll be dealt with. He'll be done. And you can just stay on cloud nine. And you can just be happy all the time if we eliminate this man. So make him pay. Exert your power, get it done. And Mordecai is so confident that he can get it done, Haman, excuse me, so confident, that he apparently has his servants build it overnight. And I'm going to get it done tomorrow. If I can dupe the king to sign a decree to commit genocide, what's getting him to let me kill one dude? Small potatoes. This is in the bag. I, I got this. Mordecai is done for. And even the gallows in this moment speak to this man's pride. There's this, this absurd height that's this visible expression of the absurd ego that Haman has. So, chapter 6, verse 1, at this point it's dark, okay? We entered chapter 5 with it dark, but very hopeful that Esther was going to solve the problems. And we get to the end of the chapter, and it's gotten darker. Because it's not just 11 months from now, all these people are going to die. He's going to die tomorrow tomorrow. And Esther knows nothing about this. And it's looking very bleak and very certain that Mordecai is a dead man. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep. Now, we don't know why he can't sleep other than the providence of God. Maybe he ate something at the banquet. He had heartburn. Maybe he had a lot on his mind. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe he took a nap that afternoon and so he was extra rested. We don't know. But he can't sleep. So what would a world ruler do when they can't sleep, right? Like, Am I going to get some girls from the harem to come in here? Am I going to uh, take a walk in my garden, do some government business, call my chef and have him, you know, make me a snack? What would he do? So here's what he does. He commanded to bring the book of records of Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So I want the Chronicle books to be brought in and to be read to me. Now, these would read perhaps similar to the Chronicles in the Bible, First and Second Chronicles, maybe even a bit more dull than that. A lot of the ancient chronicles were basically spreadsheets. It just had kind of dates and times and outcomes. These, these weren't novels that were riveting and, and you know, really grabbed your attention. They didn't read like the book of Esther. So bring this in, we assume, so that he can go to sleep with them. And these are so dull and drab that it'll just put me to sleep and I'll be able to, I'll be able to rest. So verse 2, it was found written that Mordecai had told 
of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay a hand on King Ahasuerus. Now, if you were here when we covered chapter 2 of Esther, you remember this. At the end of Esther 2 was a story. It was five years before this. Five years prior, Mordecai had discovered an assassination attempt on the king, had disclosed it to Esther. Esther had told it to the king. In chapter 2, we were sure to know that Esther told the king Mordecai came up with this plan, and it was recorded in the books of the Chronicles. And for 60-plus months, it's been sitting, just collecting dust like a ticking time bomb. And now it's brought back out. They read that Mordecai has done this. In verse 3, the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There's nothing done for him. So this would have shocked the king. Many ancient rulers, including the Persians, were notorious for rewarding loyalty because you want to incentivize it so that people are loyal in the future. There's actually a story of the king's brother being saved from an assassination attempt. Someone discovered it, and he gave that man a ruler of one of the provinces. He promoted him to governor so that he could rule that province. But here, Mordecai saves the king's life, and we're told that nothing had been done for him. There were no flowers you know, sent to his wife. There were no cookies. There was no promotion. There was nothing done for him. And the king discovers this. There's no reward. And then verse 4, right on the hills of it, the king said, who's in the court? We don't know how he sensed that someone was there. Frankly, we don't know if this was right back to back or if he went to bed and then in the morning he woke up with this. Nevertheless, he senses that someone is there and it says, now Haman was coming to the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. So just like we learned, here he comes. He's going to petition the king to hang Mordecai. The king's servant said unto him, behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So here we are. Just learned of this. Mordecai, what happened? Nothing happened to him. Here's Haman to ask for the execution of Mordecai. You can see there's going to be some tension here. Come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? See it? Here comes Haman into the doors. King, I got something to talk to you about, man. King, I got something to talk to you about to you too. You go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Okay, I'll go first. I really want to honor somebody. Like, I, I want to give them a lot of honor what should I do? And Haman, of course, prideful Haman. Well, of course, I'm do it. It has to be me. I mean, the honor has to be me. So he answers, here's what you should do. Verse 7. For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, do this. Let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear. And the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal, which is set upon his head, let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now if the king realized that Haman was asking this for himself, it would have bordered on treason. This is not... King, you know, you got a bunch of robes. You got some in the back of your closet. You're probably going to give them to Goodwill yesterday or tomorrow anyway. So, I mean, give them one of those robes. And you know, you got like 8,000 horses, okay? You got one of those. 
Kelly Blue Book, fair market value. I mean, used, good condition, probably like 5000 I mean, but you got that to spare. That's chump change for you. So give him a horse. No, 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 no. This is give him your robe. Put your crown on his head. Put him on your horse and ride him through the street like a conquering hero. And get, get some noble, some, some really elevated guy to lead him around and to say, this what he is, the man, he is the stuff. This is the one that the king delights to honor. Why don't you do that? To wear the king's robe, to ride the king's horse, to be led publicly in honor around the city streets comes very close to claiming the throne. And he says, why don't we get as close to equality as we can and give that to the man that you want to honor? So verse number 10, the king said to Haman, and you know what's coming, make haste, do it quick, take the apparel, take the horse that thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that that has, has spoken. Can you imagine this scene right here? Haman! That is genius. I, I know why I pay you the big bucks, bro. That is a great idea. Why don't you get all that stuff and quickly, don't delay on this stuff, go do this for Mordecai. And you know that noble that needs to lead him around and give the honor? That You do that. You be the guy that leads him around. You be the one that gives him the honor. So here, he, I mean, this, there is not a, a more comical or ironic scene in the entirety of the whole Bible. Like this, this is so classic. This is a reversal and a plot twist that, that is absolutely immaculate. Verse number 11, then took Haman the apparel and the horse. He arrayed Mordecai. He brought him on horseback through the street of the city, proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. So it's all done. Mordecai goes back to work. Haman hasted to his house mourning, having his head covered. Now, I want to zoom out for just a minute, and I want you to see the effects of pride in this man's life, because this is an unbelievable case study. It's I did it, I do it, and what does that result in? First of all, it makes this man evil. And I'm choosing this word very carefully. You have to know that pride makes you evil. Not just foolish, not just could set you up for a, for a bad decision. Pride makes you evil. Pride made the devil the devil. Okay, I'll put it that way. This man, Haman, in his pride, becomes murderous, deceitful, maniacal, wants to commit genocide, all birthed out of his pride. You say, well, that's not me. I mean, I'm not going to murder anybody because, because of my pride. You have to understand that pride will lead you to other sins you never saw coming. Augustine put it this way years and years and years ago. He said that pride was the mother of all sins, that it's like the petri dish in which all the other sins grow. And I think he was right. Look at whatever sins you struggle with, and oftentimes there is pride deep down rooted in there that's driving all of that. For example, struggle with racism. What is that other than pride over your race or pride over your class? Struggle with bitterness or unforgiveness. What drives your bitterness and your unforgiveness oftentimes is pride. Because when you are bitter and unforgiving, what you do is you look at that person and you say, you know what, they did something to me that they should have never done, and not only should they never have done it, that's not, that's not a small thing, that's a big thing. How could they possibly do that? I would never do that. 
And when you start to say, I would never do that, so how could they do that to me? What you've just done is you've said, I'm prideful. I would never do that. When you start to say, you know what? Except by the grace of God, that could be me. You are a massive step closer to bitterness or to letting go of your bitterness and letting go of your unforgiveness. Your humility now will drive you to get rid of your bitterness and your unforgiveness. All all of the sins that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis oftentimes root themselves in pride. If you worry, some of you are like, that's me, I'm a worry wart all the time. Why do you worry? Here's what worry is at its core. I know how things should go, and I'm fearful that they won't go that way. That's what it is. I'm scared that they don't go the way that that they need to go. How do you know they should go that way? How, how do you know how the dominoes should fall? How do you know what's best? How do you know what's going to lead you to success and what's, what's going to be awesome for you? How do you know that? You don't. You're prideful. But because you think you know how it should all go, now you can worry about how it all doesn't go the way you thought it should go, right? Underneath all that is pride. Pride will make you an evil, sinful person. But the trick of it is pride will blind the fire out of you. All of the other sins, you can pretty much see when you're doing them. It's pretty obvious that, you know what, I am a worry wart. I've, I've had a million people tell me over the years, I've, I've, I worry, I'm a worry wart, I struggle with anxiety. I rarely, and I mean rarely, have someone tell me, Pastor, I'm just a prideful person. I just, got, God needs to work on me and get some of this pride out of my life. I almost never have anyone say that to me because you can't see it. It's the carbon monoxide of sin. Like it's odorless and you don't know that it's killing you until it's too late. Pride is something that, it, that is so potent that it's basically this. I can read this from a distance. I can look at it. But if I want to just stare at it real, 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 real close, all of a sudden I can't read a thing. Pride is a self-absorption that's me, 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 I did it, I'm doing it, and you just get closer and closer and closer to yourself. You would think because you look at yourself 24-7 that you could get an accurate view of yourself, but you're so close that you're blinded. You can no longer see you. And the thing is, because you're prideful, you won't accept the advice or the feedback or the criticism from other people that can see you. Because when they come to give it to you or to tell you where you've missed a spot or where you could grow or where you could learn, you're so prideful that you're immediately defensive and you're immediately combative and so you're never able to receive their feedback or receive their criticism. So not only are you blinded to yourself, now you're also blinded to what other people from the outside could say to you and you're toast. You're absolutely done for because you can't even see what's happening in your own life and how this has got a hold of you. Pride becomes this sin that kills you without you ever realizing it. I'll put it to you this way. How many of you really don't like, you would even go so far as to say, like, I kind of detest or hate snobs. Anyone hate snobs? Okay. I told you a trick question was coming later. Here it is. Okay. Me too. What does it mean that I hate snobs? Well, it means I look down my nose at the people who look down the nose at people, right? There's a certain amount of pride in that, is there not? Okay, if that didn't work, try this. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have gone through, we're almost, well, not almost done, but we're the majority of the way done with the sermon. How many of you have gone through today's sermon primarily thinking about someone else? Oh man, I hope they're listening. I, I should find, I'm, I'm gonna find this one on YouTube and send them a link. They need to hear this. Don't, 
Doesn't it take a certain amount of pride to come this far through the sermon and not think of yourself primarily? But it's us. It's me. It's not, it's not like you. Shame on you people. It's me. This happens to us so quickly that it gets a hold of us and we don't see it. And, and, and we're so blinded to the reality that it's there in our lives. And I'm trying my best this morning to help you see that when you struggle with this, this is a big deal. This is deadly. This is evil. This will eat your lunch. This, this will destroy you. When Proverbs says that pride cometh before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, that's heavy language. It's saying that pride is going to demolish you. And you find Haman is... is He's one step closer to being demolished. A little bit has happened here, but you flip the chapter to chapter number seven that we're going to look at next week, and you'll find that this man is utterly destroyed because of his pride. And I, as your pastor in love, am trying to help you, and frankly, I'm trying to help myself. There's been a number of confessions that have come from me this week as I studied and prepared for this to help myself see, man, I'm far more prideful than I thought I was. And I'm trying to hold it up and help you see you probably struggle with this, and it can kill you. You say, what, what's the solution then? How do, how do I remedy this? How do I not end up like Haman? Well, we've covered a couple basic things. So receiving feedback would be great. Actually inviting it into your life and receiving that. And by the way, there is an inferiority form of pride that is just as destructive, Okay. So we've been talking about the superiority, I'm awesome sort of pride. There's also a very self-deflating, I'm terrible, I don't deserve anything, I'm, I'm so bad. But it's still, I'm, 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 I'm. You're still completely focused on yourself and blinded to yourself. And you can't take feedback either because it melts you. It absolutely crushes you if someone gives you feedback because you're so down on yourself. And it's, it's the same thing, just in a different form. It's still pride. So receive feedback, for sure. I'm trying to help you get a sense of how big God is this morning and how little you are. So that's a helpful step, for sure. And you can read the scriptures to find that out for yourself. But I'll, I'll take you one step further. What Haman ultimately craves, what Haman ultimately wants that, his, that is so interconnected with his pride, ultimately you can have detached from pride. And I want to show you something in this text that I think is, is highly significant. There's this phrase that comes up over and over and over and over and over again. Look back at chapter 6, verse 3. The king said about Mordecai, what honor and dignity should I give to this man? I want to give honor. I want to give dignity. Verse number 6, Haman, what shall be done unto, and here's the phrase, the man whom the king delighteth to honor? To whom would the king delight to honor more than myself? Verse number 7. For the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Verse number nine. That the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor. Right in the middle of the verse. At the end of the verse. The man whom the king delighteth to honor. Verse 11. The end of the verse. The man whom the king delighteth to honor. Haman desperately needing because of his pride. Respect and approval and admiration. So much so that even his subordinate. When his subordinate didn't give him approval. It ruined his day desperately needing this, comes up with a plan, and his plan more or less is, if the people out there saw that I was loved by someone like that, man, then they'd really know who I was. 
If all those people out there saw that I was loved like that by someone like that, then I would have value. Then I would have worth. Then, then they would really see how good I was. And this, at its core, is something that we all want. We all want respect. We all want value. We all want dignity. We all want love. And we don't just want it from any old Joe Schmo. It's not enough to have that respect or that value or that dignity or that love come from some rando on the street who you've never met who just walks up and says, I love you to pieces. Like, that doesn't mean much to you. What do you want? If you're honest, each and every one of us, I don't care if, if you're young or old, all of us want to be loved by someone who's lovable, someone who has value and dignity themselves. We want, as Tolkien put it in Lord of the Rings, we want the praise of the praiseworthy. That's above all rewards, Right? This is why young kids want so badly the admiration and respect from their father, the, the one who's big and high in their eyes and in their sight, and they, and they want that respect or that mentorship conferred upon them. This is why your relationship, if you're married at all, if you've ever dated, you get this. You get what it's like to look at someone and to think they're beautiful or they're awesome. Or they're kind of up on a pedestal for you, and I don't know if I can convince them to love me back. And you take that step and you say, I love you. And then when they say, I love you back, Boy, does that do something for you. Because the one whom you love, the one who you've put value and dignity on, now is returning or reciprocating that to you. And Haman at his core is saying, I want, I want love, I want value, I want them to see that I'm loved like that by someone like that. If they, if they could see someone that glorious, the king, love me in this way, then I'd know my value. And I would submit to you that Haman doesn't ask for the wrong thing, but he does ask the wrong king. There, if you understand the scriptures, you understand who you are in Jesus, you understand that deep down we do want someone of ultimate glory to love us. We do want the praise of the praiseworthy. We do want someone of ultimate worth deferring to us and valuing us and Haman just asked the wrong king and we know as Christians that there is a better king like the king of glory the one who has all glory and all value and all worth actually redeems us and ascribes to us righteousness and value actually puts his love upon us and I would suggest to you that if you can be loved like that by someone like that that should be a one-two punch that your pride needs. Amen. That you actually don't have to go find it. You don't have to tell everyone else that I did it or I'm doing it or crave it or want it or need it or seek it or have to get it from everybody else. You don't have to outsource this to all the world around you. You actually have this in a vertical relationship with the Lord. And I want to just read a few verses with you and over you this morning as we end today's sermon. I want you to look at Romans chapter number 8. We're going to read six verses together that I hope will just put a cherry on top of this and hopefully will move your heart into what you need for this week so that you can not just feel loved by God because you are, but that you also would have your pride be done away with and realize that I don't need to get this from other people. I don't need to act like I did it all. I don't need to act like I'm due. Verse, Romans 8, verse 31, here we are. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who, who's going to put a charge? Who's going to say that I don't deserve it? Who's going to say that I'm, that I'm wrong? I know I don't deserve it, but God justified me. Man, he made it right. He took away my sins. He forgave. It's done. Who is he that condemneth? Verse 34. 
It's Christ that died, yea, rather, he's risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, and he also maketh intercession for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. This is what this text says. It says we have the king of glory who is literally for us, who's not condemning us, who's loving us with a fierce love, a love that will stick through anything, through peril or famine or sword or distress or anguish. And if we could be loved like that by someone like that, a love not because I did it and not because I'm do it, but just because he gave it to me graciously. If I could be loved like that by someone like that, should that not move me into a spot to where I can be comfortable and at peace and know that this is deferred upon me, and I don't got to get it from everybody else. I don't have to go search for it from everybody else. And all the while, I can know I have this, not, not pridefully because it's because of me. No, 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 no. Because of him. That he's just gracious. And he's just good. And he's just strong. And he just loves us in that way because he can. Man, if, we can, if you can lock onto that and have that grab your heart, I, I promise you, it can deal with your pride in a way that nothing else in the world can. The grace and the love of God is a solution that each and every one of us need to know that we're loved like that by someone like that. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning with hearts of joy and praise that you have... <laughs> deferred upon us righteousness that you've justified us forgiven us that you want us desire us love us not because we're awesome but because you are Lord I pray that we would take hold of that good news that gospel and that we wouldn't let it go I pray that we can let go of our pride and stop thinking that we did all this or we kept all the rules, we were so religious. I pray that we will let go of that nonsense and just realize that it's you, it's all you. And that we would not be these self-promoting, glory-robbing people, but that we would push the glory back up to you over and over and over again. Father, may our view of ourselves line up with your view of us. And may that lead us to defer to you and praise you more often. We thank you for being this God who loves us. And nothing can take that love away from us. Thank you for giving us this, this sonship, these, to make us an heir, to, to put robes on us and to let us ride your horse as it were. God, we praise your precious holy name for this. This morning I want you to just remain in a spirit of prayer and I want you... If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus, to talk to him, I think it would be very fitting to confess some pride if it's there. I think it would be very fitting to praise his name, just that he would, that he would Romans 8 you, that he would justify you and love you and save you and want you. If you are not a Christian and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, while people around you pray, I want to give you an opportunity to, to meet Jesus today. The truth of the Bible is that he did die on a cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead, and he offers to anyone who will put their faith and trust in him 
that will actually save you from your sins. He'll forgive you. He'll give you a home in heaven. He will justify you. He'll make you right with God. Forgive you, clean you up, put a love on you like you've never felt in your life. If you will turn to him in faith. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? Oh, it's very simple. The Bible says that if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And literally, where you sit right now, you call out in prayer from your heart to God, and you tell him that you're trusting in him, you're putting your faith in him. If you've never done that, I'd like to maybe help you. I'd like to lead you in a prayer that perhaps you can pray from your heart to the Lord. It doesn't have to be these words verbatim, but if you will sincerely call out to him and ask him to save you, he will. Maybe pray something like this. Just pray, Jesus, I actually believe that you died on a cross, not just because, but for me and for my sins. 